0: It was decided that, that journalists shouldn't be allowed to stay and see what happened with the discussions and the votes. I decided to stay there and sort of make a, st- a statement, uh, stand up for government transparency, stand up for the freedom of the press.
1: On this episode of Fun Police, an underreported, under under-the-radar international organization with nearly unlimited funds and the willingness to snuff out anyone who might ask a question.
0: Usually it took five or six um, Indian um, police officers to to physically pull me out. I mean, I had bruises on my, on my arms and my shoulders, and uh, I was sort of deposited outside.
1: Fun Police, season two, episode two. When global health gets a baton. Act one, experts. As we've covered throughout the Fun Police podcast, There exists in our modern global system a sort of international order, divided between sovereign states and their leaders, elected democratically or not, multilateral institutions, and international organizations, set up as organs for policy-making, economic, collaboration, and public health. The machinery of influence and decision-making in sovereign countries is governed by whatever type of political and economic system the people have adopted. There's accountability, There's rule of law, there's voting, those are in democracies. In dictatorial states, that's the rule that applies, and there are no votes cast. For international organizations, the measure of accountability starts to get a little murky. Famously, throughout the Euro crisis of the early 2010s, names like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, became commonplace. But their structure, their funding, and makeup... We're still pretty confusing. Inspectors from the so-called Troika, the European Union, International Monetary Fund and European Central Bank are in Greece again. They're talking about further privatizations and the layoff of 4,000 public workers by the end of the year in return for the next installment of bailout money. This comes just days after the IMF admitted mistakes over Greece's economic recovery plan, including underestimating how much its economy would slump from
2: austerity measures. During
1: international even... crises of war and peace, the United Nations becomes a focus, hemmed by the Security Council and a General Assembly where resolutions are introduced and debated. Perhaps peacekeepers are dispatched and statements condemning sovereign nations are published and read aloud.
0: Incredibly, this is
3: not the first time the leader of Pakistan has misused platforms provided by the UN to propagate false and malicious propaganda against my country and seeking in vain to divert the world's attention from the sad state of his country where terrorists enjoy free
1: during the covid19 pandemic more people became aware of one of the principal institutions and organs of the u.n the world health organization it's a specialized agency of the u.n established over 75 years ago
0: delta and omicron are twin threats that are driving up cases to record numbers which again is leading to spikes in hospitalizations and deaths.
1: That voice you heard there was Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebrezeyes. He's the Director General of the World Health Organization and has been since 2017. His face and voice were very pivotal in the early days of COVID-19 and throughout the pandemic, and he continues to influence health policies today, not just on coronavirus and other pandemics, but also on some of the other issues that the World Health Assembly focuses on. The World Health Assembly is supposed to be the premier forum for global health policy. It's populated by health ministers from across the world, where various programs and proposals and even some treaties are introduced, discussed, and implemented for adoption in sovereign states. Rather than being a global government, as some critics would posit, it's more of a council of experts in some kind of deliberative body. But while that might seem graceful, politics is just as present here as in any parliament. They discuss global regulations on breast milk substitutes, vaccine policies, health guidelines, universal health care, and effective methods to harmonize and control those issues in UN member states. It was here, in 2003, buoyed by insistence and funding from member countries and wealthy private donors to the World Health Organization, including billionaires Michael Bloomberg and Bill Gates, that the World Health Assembly established a -a one-of-a-kind new global treaty organization, focusing on countering the use and the effects of tobacco products. This treaty was named the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And by its name, it sounds as if it is something that is surely needed. Smoking is a global epidemic, And up to 8 million people this year around the world will lose their lives because of smoking-related illnesses. But how this organization works, how it uses its treaty powers, is an entirely different issue. One that affects not only your right to choose and your lifestyle freedom, but oftentimes warps politics, money, funding, and influence from activists to deprive you of many of those same freedoms that you choose to enjoy. The following is an extract from the YouTube page of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. Granted, it's pretty sparse. You don't see many videos of the proceedings, which we'll get into why that is much later, but it's just generally one-on-one conversations where everyone agrees, there are no conflicting viewpoints, and there's really an obfuscation as to what the real issues are. The people in charge really are nameless. You don't necessarily need to name them. They switch every few years. It normally comes whenever one conference is hosted in one country. Their bureaucrats get to sit on top. This is kind of how it always changes. Let's listen in on what the FCTC's people themselves think about their own mission, what they're doing, and how appropriate it is for global public health.
3: We just finished a panel with Dr. Tedros, the Director General of WHO, on this very important topic. Now, Adriana, I'd like to ask you, FCTC, it was implemented 20 years ago, so... How did it start and why was that so important for the world and why is it
2: still important today? The first thing is that the, the Framework Convention is, is a comprehensive approach to the problem. Before some time when we, for specifically in the area of drugs, it was much more focused given in the supply side demands okay trying to say no to this is more comprehensive because it has a demand side, a demand side measures and supply side measures so, Really, when you implemented it comprehensively, that makes a good environment for the people not to be enticed to use and the main the main uh, measures are, for example, banning smoking in or enclosed public places and workplaces, uh, putting very prominent graphic health warnings in tobacco packages or even having Uh, Plain packaging, that is a standardized packaging for all the pros being in the same color, let's say, and bearing very big uh, uh, graphic warnings. Banning advertising promotion and sponsorship, that is a really direct conduit for youth to be enticed into tobacco uh, control. Uh, Raising taxes, because raising taxes is the most effective individual measure To make uh, the tobacco control less affordable and then to reduce the consumption. Providing support for people who want to to quit. That is very important. So
1: So if you remember from season one of Fun Police, we detailed some of the efforts of many industrialists and billionaires, including the modern Michael Bloomberg, who've not only funded parts of the FCTC, but have weaponized it. We already know that from what he told The View. Not my favorite television can, can program. You outlaw, if you were president, could you, would you outlaw me big for under You'd try to get
3: the 20? FDA to do it. There'd be a court battle, but yes, you probably could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly the, the uh, age limit you could enforce better. In
1: a way uh, that goes far beyond the noble goal of trying to eradicate smoking. Now the focus is on novel products, vaping products, nicotine alternatives, snooze, nicotine pouches, you name it. And for many people, the model of the FCTC is just a first step. It's a way to address further problems that have been associated with alcohol or video game addiction, as the World Health Organization describes it. What else could it be used against? Could it be used against red meats, overeating? Could it be used against farming and pesticides? Could it be used against technology and your access to it? This is the model that the FCTC provides, a small forum, a treaty, to give a starting point For figuring out global rules on a product that many people detest. Tobacco. And the next step after that, try to snuff out the alternatives. The vape devices, the nicotine pouches, the snus And then after that, the playbook is set. The neo-prohibitionists have won the day. And the fun police know exactly how to act, how to set up their campaign, and who they can turn to in their moments of need. Here's one example. Dr. Douglas Betcher, a fellow Canadian, uh, he's now the director of the Department for Prevention of Non-Communicable Diseases at the World Health Organization. He's also worked at the World Bank. He's been a key focal point at many of these Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. He served as a key ally and advisor to many of the proceedings. And he gives a layout of exactly what the FCTC's plan is and how they hope to expand this to other categories that would also threaten your favorite products and your lifestyle freedom. Uh,
3: that the lesson learned of the Framework Convention, we have major public health uh, challenges, whether it be air pollution, antimicrobial resistance, obesity, etc., that have some of the major, some of the telltale transnational. Um, features um, that probably, likely, definitely need international cooperation. And uh, so where we were um, before the negotiation of the Framework Convention, we knew that tobacco obviously was a killer product. We needed a global response. And we knew that the tobacco industry was ruthless and after us. The um, World Bank really helped to push forward the economic evidence um, with the um, the Curbing the Epidemic uh, report that also showed the economic benefits uh, and health benefits of implementing core demand reduction measures. Uh, the, uh, the Actually, what is it? The measures and the analysis here were instrumental in defining the core of the Framework Convention and also eventually empower.
1: In the first season of Fund Police, I gave some detail as to what exactly these convention conferences are all about. I've attended two of them, been there in person as a journalist, been there to ask questions. It's a torrid affair. You can even see this in real time. As we speak, as this episode is being released in podcast form via the RSS feeds onto Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever player you like, just do it right now. Go to x.com, type in FCTC, and just see all the loveliness that is present on the newsfeed. There's, on Twitter, the FCTC Brigade, as I like to call them. Many of these NGOs and partner organizations, groups like the Framework Convention Alliance or the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, they're monitoring and looking at all the comments and responding to as many of them as possible, calling them shills, saying they're bots— in these comments are hundreds of thousands of people who use harm-reducing products like e-cigarettes and vaping devices many of them are very loud and proud on twitter hey vape twitter and they're trying to present the evidence that they know from their own life from scientific studies and it's just not something that fits into the frame of many of these organizations who are the modern fun police there's the framework convention tobacco and control that's happening in panama city It's happening this week, we've got all of the delegations, we've got those organizations that are there, and they're making sure that they can clamp down in real time those who oppose their message. As we've discussed on the first season of Fun Police, now's your chance if you haven't listened to it yet. These organizations, nonprofits, activist groups, many of them are present within the halls. Indeed, they're given their own tables, their own speaking slots, even giving paddles so they can vote on resolutions. These are the favorite institutions and organizations funded by those same billionaires and philanthropists, and they propagate the message of the FCTC. They try to denigrate anyone who opposes them. They try to shame any country or organization that might question the motives of some of the people there. Some of the names are familiar. The Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids funded by Michael Bloomberg, the Framework Convention Alliance, also funded by Michael Bloomberg, many different lung associations, international tuberculosis groups, also funded by Michael Bloomberg, and a consortium of other well-meaning billionaires who've sent tons of their money to these organizations to implement a policy that they agree with, eradicating tobacco around the world. The only problem with that is when new products are introduced from the marketplace, from innovators, from entrepreneurs, and are willingly accepted by consumers. They buy them when they go out to the store, when they're driving their cars, and they use them to get off of tobacco. Institutions like the FCTC, many of the activists who support them, don't see the evidence. And not only do they remain blind to it, but in many cases, they deny it outright.
2: Uh, most of them include flavors which are toxic and attractive to young people. And we know from the current knowledge that young children who experiment with this product actually go on or uh, could progress to uh, go on to use conventional cigarettes.
1: This is a conference that's held at the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease. That's one of the FCTC scientist officials who is just out and out lying. There is no proof of that. There have been no studies that prove that. And in fact, we've actually seen studies now that prove a gateway away from smoking for those who do use nicotine alternatives like vaping. But, you know, it's the fun police. We can't allow evidence to get in the way of a good time of neo-prohibitionism. Act 2. The Illusion of Consensus The FCTC affair goes on every two years. Oftentimes it's in developing countries such as India or Panama, but oftentimes it takes place in Geneva or perhaps in Moscow or South Korea. Each time there's a general assembly, there's press conferences that are held within, there are votes, resolutions, and there are progress reports on how the various restrictions on tobacco products and many of those nicotine alternatives are going. For those that have done very well, There are promises of budgets, of funding, of sending different resources that they can step up their efforts. Many of the activists and activist groups that are there applaud and cheer. Many of the countries who perhaps are a bit too slow to implement the restrictions that they like are often booed or given awards like the dirty ashtray by many of these groups to show that they're not following what the FCTC is intended to do. For insight on what actually happens here, I wanted to speak to someone who actually had been there, and someone who, on multiple occasions, was escorted out after they cut off access to the media or anyone who was asking questions. Drew Johnson is a journalist, he's an entrepreneur, he's someone who lives the principles of open government and transparency. In fact, so much so that he's using the same to run for Congress in Nevada's 3rd district.
0: One thing that's good about the U.S. having such a disproportionate hand in the funding of the WHO and the UN in general is that we can threaten to pull funding and make changes, and I think that's really valuable. Obviously, there's there's use for these sorts of organizations, but they have to be accountable. They have to be transparent. They can't uh, lean towards pleasing certain lobbyists or certain countries or certain um, uh, companies. Uh, we've got to make sure that these uh, these organizations, if they're going to take tax dollars, that they do a good job of of sort of playing by the rules that they expect of the countries involved, which is being open, being transparent, uh, following some basic open records laws and, and um, document production, uh, Sunshine Act kind of laws. And right now, we haven't seen a lot of that with the uh, WHO and and hopefully, uh, if President Trump is reelected, we can get back to that sort of situation because um, we haven't seen that in Biden's term so far. We haven't seen any, any interest or any hunger for encouraging more transparency and accountability among these, uh, these organizations. And we need whoever the president of the United States is, they have an outsized voice in fighting for transparency. And, and hopefully we can see a president who cares about that. Uh, sooner than later.
1: Now, as I mentioned at the early outset, many of these international organizations are influenced no doubtedly by politics, which is why Drew views this from a political lens, uh, albeit a partisan one. But he still brings up an important point. There are many countries that have influence on some of these organizations. It is not just made up of one person, one dictator, as it were. They're supposed to be a consensus of nations, that is coming up with ideas for promoting health policies, for figuring out solutions, and what are the best policies that we can implement? What are the best sticks and carrots that we can use as a global health community in order to try to achieve our common goals? But There's something very unique again about the FCTC, how it works, and specifically how they treat journalists like Drew, who have been present for many of these in the
0: past. So what got me interested in the FCTC and this, this tobacco control organization is going back to 2012, there was actually a, a, uh, an effort to create an international sin tax, an international tobacco tax. And as a government watchdog, as a, uh, as a taxpayer advocate, a taxpayer watchdog, I wanted to see how that was being done because ultimately I, I knew that If this happened to tobacco, it could happen to alcohol, it could happen to to fatty foods, it could happen to sweets, there's sort of no end and there could be international sin taxes if this were to pass. So I went with that in mind uh, as a taxpayer advocate and journalist, I wanted to see back in 2012 what was going on with this organization. And what I found was that there was no transparency. So in 2012, that first meeting I went to was in South Korea and during that meeting, they kicked out the press. And ultimately, the FCTC is a WHO organization, which is a UN organization. And the UN holds the World Press Freedom Day every single year. To be a member of the UN, you have to follow open records laws and and sunshine laws to make your government transparent or you can't be a member of the UN. So here, a UN body isn't you know, walking the walk that it's uh, that it's talking. So there's a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of frustration, and in 2012 that was sort of my first taste of the lack of transparency and and the the uh, concerns about corruption that we found later. So I went again to the FCTC meeting in Moscow in 2014, and that year there was a vote to kick out journalists before any discussions took place whatsoever, any votes, we couldn't know what happened. So if a uh, some sort of a tobacco tax or a tobacco ban or whatever happened uh, took place, we wouldn't know about it. And so I decided there and then in Moscow in 2014 that uh, I wouldn't leave once journalists were asked to leave. And I was very quickly pulled out of my seat by a few Russian security guards, they they got me out pretty quickly and I wasn't allowed to go back until the very last day of the conference. Moving forward to 2016, where we both were in India, that was the most frustrating experience of my life because I was told that journalists journalists would be able to stay. I was told that our voice had sort of been heard from 2014, that uh, the FCTC would do a better job of making things transparent and accountable, and maybe they wouldn't allow the public in, and maybe they wouldn't allow tobacco growers or tobacco companies in, but they would at least allow the press in to let them be eyes and ears about what was going on uh, when these decisions were being made. And and keep in mind that these uh, this organization runs on about $20 million a year of taxpayers' money from different countries around the world, and all of the people who are representing the governments that make up uh, the FCTC, which is you know, 180 governments, are flown in, are, are put up at these nice hotels on the taxpayer's dime. And so I think it's only appropriate that journalists are able to keep track of what's going on. So in India, when it was decided that, that journalists shouldn't be allowed to stay and see what happened with the discussions and the votes, I decided to stay there and sort of make a, st- a statement. Uh, stand up for government transparency, stand up for the freedom of the press. And so I did not move. I sort of put my hands on my chair and, and locked myself in. And uh, eventually it took you know, five or six um, Indian um, police officers to to physically pull me out. I mean, I had bruises on my, on my arms and my shoulders, and uh, I was sort of deposited outside. I had the head of the Convention, the head of the organization, a UN employee, literally take the lanyard off my neck, rip it off my neck, uh, it, it caused uh, some cuts and scrapes on my neck when he did that, and he told me that uh, I was having my my pass revoked uh, as a journalist, and I wasn't allowed to come back. So it was, uh, you know, it was frustrating, it was scary, uh, but ultimately the most, uh, the strongest feeling I, I felt was just that my rights were being taken away. As a journalist who had been, you know, received accreditation, I was writing at the time for a very high-profile media outlet in the United States, and and here I was being kicked out of a public meeting that was funded by taxpayers and should be open to the public, to journalists, to whoever wants to see what's going on.
1: Now, granted, Drew is a bit of a cowboy here. There aren't many journalists that would take a stand like this specifically not at a UN conference, and one that is the FCTC. The issue with many of the different activist organizations is they're not only there to uh, try to spread the message, but they're also there to enforce a particular type of doctrine, and that is that whatever the FCTC says goes. There can't be any kind of global consensus if there are people who are detracting or asking questions that are too complicated. Uh, The same happened to me when I was there and asked about the nuances and the differences between novel nicotine products and alternatives and traditional tobacco. Why is it that the institutions of the FCTC, in all of their different documentation, equate them, say they're equal? Why do proponents like Michael Bloomberg, who do fund a grand majority of much of the FCTC activity, why do they continue to propagate the myth that novel nicotine products, which don't contain tobacco, are tobacco products, should be treated the same, should be taxed at the same level, and should adhere to the same restrictions. It's a simple and easy set of questions you would think they would be able to not only clarify, but provide good logical sense on. But realistically, that's not what we've had. Perhaps that's why we need more people like Drew asking questions of some of these organizations to figure out what actually makes them tick and whether we, as citizens, as taxpayers, have a voice.
0: So I think it would be great if there were more people like me running for Congress, running for state legislature, running for dog catcher, because the more people who understand government transparency, open records, uh, budgets, the better off we all are. The lower our taxes will be, the more uh, responsibly our dollars will be spent. And ultimately, the more accountable government will be to us and our needs. So I hope I can sort of open the doors a little bit for people who are journalists and government watchdogs and and think tank budget walks and, and folks like that to run for office in the future.
1: Now, many of us, depending on where we live or our own nationality, may not have the same opportunities as Drew to run for office on those same principles that led him to eventually being scudded out the door, dragged by Indian guards, and kicked out of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control Conference. But many of us have an ability to at least question, to understand, and to figure out if this is the kind of model that we want or need for our global health regulators. There are pressing health questions, we all know that. We've had to deal with it, many of us were locked in our homes so that we could try to overcome it. But putting all of that behind a kind of obscure, not well-known conference where many of these policies are decided without normal democratic debate begs many questions. Is the consensus real, or is it just an illusion that we're only now beginning to understand what its true ramifications are? Act 3, False Prophets. If there's one institution we trust, it's that of our medical experts. Our doctors, our nurses, those who welcome us for our yearly checkups, or to save us in a moment of grace when we're in the emergency room. Whenever the health community speaks on a particular topic, many people, legislators, citizens, individuals, we perk up our ears It's important knowledge. These are individuals who've gone to medical schools, they've poured through textbooks, they've listened to dozens of hours of different lectures on very arcane medical topics, they follow the latest research and see all of the different papers. At least that's what we believe about much of our medical establishment. And truth be told, there are very good, smart, intuitive, entrepreneurial people who work in this regard, who provide us information, who keep us healthy. But within the health community sector, there exists this public health, this global health phenomenon. These aren't doctors. These are more policy advocates, communication specialists, those who discuss health issues but don't necessarily have the medical training to back it up. These are the ones who are often in bureaucratic positions at the World Health Organization or the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, or who make up many different governmental ministries. If you haven't learned anything yet from Fun Police, the idea that we have experts who are available, who are there, who are willing to answer questions, who understand the nuances of various issues, all of that becomes a lot more murky, a lot more nuanced. It leads us asking more questions about what exactly is the truth about the research on various nicotine alternatives or what is the research on obesity what products can solve some of these ills or does it all come down to programs and departments and government-funded initiatives that always have at their heart the goal to make us all healthy if we start to ask questions on one part of the scale does the entire scale fall down if it can't be supported by a foundation of truth of good scientific rigor of the scientific method itself these are large questions to ask and many assumptions are baked in but if there's one thing that's true it's that using politics as a battering ram as a baton to try to implement your vision of neo prohibitionism to put it out onto the world stage funded by some of the largest industrialists with their own agenda leads to conflicts leads to a position to where science is not as nuanced anymore. It's clear-cut. There are only good studies and bad studies. There's only our way or the highway. Case in point, we look to the numbers that were just released in January 2024. Globally, there are now 1.25 billion adult tobacco users. It's actually one of the lowest estimates we've ever had On record, one in five adults worldwide continue to consume tobacco. That compares to one in three just 20 years ago. This, whatever your metric, is a success. And it is one that carries on. And it's been done through the work of consumers, of advocates. It's been done because there are people who've provided alternatives that are less harmful, that give people a way out of using traditional combustible cigarettes. But you don't see celebration at the World Health Organization. There will never be discussions of how market alternatives have improved the situation, made our lives better, made us live longer. It hasn't come from a government institution. It hasn't come from a treaty. It hasn't come from anywhere where a government bureaucrat sat. Instead, it's market alternatives, it's vapors, those who use nicotine alternatives, who made their own decisions and their own choice, who used their lifestyle freedom to improve their lives, and they did so willingly, not because of any program, not because of any treaty, and not because of some global consensus and some organization that says that was the way that we had to live. And so now, where are we? Global health has a baton. They have a framework. They have a model of working. The new modern innovations coming out of the market from entrepreneurs that offer people an alternative to age-old products like cigarettes and cigars and other traditional tobacco products are not heralded as heroes. They're not seen as the answers. They're seen as the enemy. They're grouped in with every industrial actor in the tobacco sector. They're called shills, Many of the vapers who are very proud to be on social media and brandish their latest new vaping device or said that they don't exist, that it's not proven that the products they've used to quit smoking are effective. It's laughable if it weren't so sad. But that is the goal, ultimately, of Fun Police. The idea that we can continue to clamp down and use these different institutions, use these different instruments, But it won't last for long. We're empowered. Much like our guest Drew Johnson, people have it within them to oppose what they see as wrong. What they see as cutting down the nuance that would otherwise save our lives, help us live longer, help us live more productive, more enjoyable lives. The fun police can be met with all kinds of actions. But it begins with you. It begins with questioning. It begins with following the science. It begins with actually turning to the market alternatives, turning to entrepreneurs and people solving problems who don't have the incentive of government dollars or the latest grant from Bloomberg Philanthropies or whatever other organization might be out there. It's individuals making decisions for themselves. It's lifestyle freedom. It's the freedom to choose. It's what the fund police have tried to oppose for a long time, but something we know that you won't adhere to. Fun Police is a production of the Consumer Choice Center. It's produced by Bill Vietz. This episode was hosted by myself, Yael Ososki. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Subscribe to the podcast, and we'll talk with you soon. Until next time, stay free.